Dr. Jay Schreeder from the Bascom Palmer Institute in Miami, Florida, and I have the pleasure of bringing you New Retina Radio Journal Club with the Bitbuckle Society VBS. I'm joined by three friends and colleagues from around the country. First in alphabetical order, Dr. Sabin Dang. He's from the Retina Institute in St. Louis, Missouri. Sabin, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Next, we have Dr. Brian Doe. He is in Retina Group of Washington and Washington, D.C., and he is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Georgetown University. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Jay. Good to be here. Last but not least, we have Dr. Avni Finn from the Bay Area. She is part of Northern California Retina Vitreous Associates. Avni, welcome. Thank you, Jay. So we have a couple exciting articles to touch on regarding everyone's favorite topic, retinal detachment surgery. And we're going to jump right in. The first study we're going to talk about is outcomes of primary regmatogenous retinal detachment repair with extensive scleral depressed vitreous removal and dynamic examination. This was by Bagaj et al. Avni, tell us a little bit about this paper and what they showed. Sure. So, you know, I think the premise of this paper is basically that there's extensive debate about how much vitrectomy we need to do, right? So how, how much peripheral vitrectomy, vitreous shaving do we need to do to, to successfully repair a primary, primary retinal detachment with vitrectomy? So the, the goal of this study was really look, to look at and report the outcomes of patients undergoing retinal detachment repair using small gauge vitrectomy and performing what they called extensive scleral depression with vitreous removal and dynamic depression. Um, this was a single center study at an academic medical institution, um, and they looked at surgeries performed by three different surgeons, and it was retrospective in nature. And these patients underwent vitrectomy alone or vitrectomy with scleral buckle. And all of these patients underwent what they called an extensive vitreous removal with dynamic depression. So they defined that in the paper as far peripheral vitrectomy over the orus sabrata, extending one to two millimeters posterior to the posterior vitreous base with slow moving anterior to posterior scleral depression. Um, they did exclude uh, patients who had surgery before um, and uh, significant PVR, so grade C PVR, any sort of neovascular PDR associated RD uh, tra trauma and uveitis. Um, and their main outcome measure was the single surgery anatomic success at three months and then final reattachment at last follow-up. Um, they also reported their visual outcomes. So in total, they included 187 eyes 159 of these eyes were vitrectomy and 29 eyes uh, got buccal vitrectomy. And they showed a really high single surgery success rate. So 99.5% of these patients had a single surgery success rate for all eyes at three months and 100% at final follow-up. Um, and of these eyes, 116 of the 117 initially MAC-OFF detachments uh, were reattached with one surgery and all of the MAC on detachments were reattached with one surgery. Great, great summary. And, and so I think limitations, again, always really important for any paper to discuss. Any big limitations before we dive into the discussion? Yeah, I think there are several big limitations for this study. One is that it's, you know, one, one, uh, one site or one, um, one institution um, and there are 
again, the surgeon factor where you have three different surgeons performing surgeries. You also have different fellows who are the skilled assistants performing the scleral depression or vice versa. Um, and obviously for an extensive peripheral shave and dynamic exam, that scleral depression is really important. So who is doing that plays a big role in your visualization and your ability to perform a thorough vitrectomy. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest limitation that I would point to um, in these patients. And then, you know, controlling for the type of detachment, which I think really wasn't, you, it's, it's difficult to control for in this type of study. So, you know, where, what, how much the extent of detachment quadrants involved, that type of thing. Yeah, great, great points. And I think always a lack of a comparison group, um, you know, is also you, you referenced that this is just looking at patients who had this shave technique. It's impossible to match completely because one patient can only have one type of surgery, but it's always an interesting question because the people who shave versus people don't shave, the people who don't shave say, well, if I don't shave, I get the same outcomes that you do. But I'll say their success rate is very impressive. I mean, there aren't many studies that show a success rate essentially hugging 100% for single surgery anatomic success rate. Um, you mentioned the, the assistant. The other thing that was interesting is the vacuum settings. You know, they referenced their cut rate is maxed out their vacuum. And it, it, it's regardless of what machine everyone uses. We don't have to talk about which machine. They all kind of similar mechanics. Uh, you know, some machines have like a shave type mode where two things happen. One is the duty cycle decreases, which is how often the cutter is open. But the bigger change is the aspiration decreases. I'll be honest, I'm actually more on this spectrum. I, I learned from one of my tennis fellowship. I don't actually switch modes to a shave mode. I don't really use a shave mode. I just use the same mode and modulate with my foot pedal how much vacuum I'm applying. But it's pretty rare I'm applying max vacuum the whole time. So I don't know what they're referencing here if they're using that max vacuum the whole time or they're modulating that, but that's the setting on the machine, in which case the vacuum could be anywhere from zero to 650. But Sven, any thoughts on like vacuum settings? And again, the idea of qualified assistant, now that you're, you know, if you're in a setting where you don't have fellows, or you don't have someone who can assist you, that obviously changes your ability to apply this technique. I'm gonna talk about vacuum settings first. Uh, Jay, I do what you do. Uh, I just stay on my core vitrectomy mode and I just use my foot pedal to modulate uh, the amount of vacuum I'm using in the periphery. The time I actually do use shave mode is actually with my fellows, particularly early in training when they're beginning to shave. I want to have that hard cap. I don't want them to have full access to that 650 vacuum because I think what we're all getting to is in the wrong setting. If you put 650 vacuum in the peripheral retina with maybe some fluid there, you're going to make more breaks and you're going to give yourself a harder time. Uh, so in those cases, I think especially when fellows are early on, capping them at something like 300 and as Jay said, just adjusting the duty cycle, giving them a safer environment to work with so they just can't really get themselves in trouble. But if an experienced VR surgeon, I think what they're suggesting is probably proportional vacuum with a 7500 7, fixed cut, which case I would feel comfortable. I don't think I would ever really use the 650, but I have it there for when I need it. Uh, also with fellows, I mean, this technique is is going to be really good at removing the peripheral gel and getting nice and clean, but you have to have a really good assistant. And it's not just like a scrub nurse is going to be able to help you do this. They really need to be engaged, looking at the scope, predicting where you're going to move your cutter next. Because as we all know, if someone depresses uh, too aggressively all of a sudden or makes some sporadic movement, we can induce some pretty severe iatrogenic injury. So I don't think this is a completely transferable technique to the vast majority of retina specialists in the country. 
the people on this uh, uh, call here are, we all get the benefit of having fellows, so I think we could use this. But what about every other retina specialist out there who doesn't have the access to the qualified surgeon? Makes it hard to see how this would be applicable to them. Great points. And I think that that's something we forget about sometimes, quote unquote, in the ivory tower, and we're surrounded by capable assistants. And, you know, I'll be very honest, and we can get into the end what everyone kind of does in terms of shaving. I think that I actually shave most of my detachments. And I wonder if I would do it if I wasn't teaching, because I feel like I have to teach people to shave so they're able to know how to shave for when they need to do. Um, I don't know if it influences the outcome. I think it's reasonable if it's safe, as you said, and you're not creating peripheral breaks and it doesn't add excessive times you get efficient with it. I think it's reasonable to do it while, while you're in the surgery. I tend to do it, but it's really hard for me to point the data that tells other surgeons that they should do it. Now, this may be an example, but there are some limitations. I mean, we talked about the lack of comparison group. It's also interesting that it's a retrospective study, Brian, but again, there's three different surgeons. How do we know everyone's technique is exactly the same? Now, maybe they came together afterward and like, oh, we all do the same thing and we'll publish this paper and report our results. But what, what do you think about that component? Um, I mean, it's, again, it's difficult to say, you know, not having been in the room when, you know, these folks were having a discussion about putting this study together. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, they, they sort of had a, a checklist in the operating room and said, this is exactly how we're going to shave every single case. Uh, when it comes to cases like this, uh, standardization is difficult. You know, you might say in your operative report that, uh, you know, uh, scleral depression and, and close uh, shaving of the vitreous base was performed, but, um, you know, everybody has different thresholds for what a close shave is. And, you know, I, I think until, or, you know, unless we have better ways of imaging the vitreous and sort of doing volumetric analyses of residual vitreous and things like that, it's, it's just sort of taking somebody's word for it, you know, unless you're actually going into the eye and seeing how much vitreous is left. Um, so, you know, again, I suspect that the methodology that they used for performing these procedures was at least similar in philosophy. Um, but I, I can't imagine that, you know, it, it was sort of like, you know, they were being methodical about doing the same exact thing for every case, especially because it's, it was retrospective in nature. Yeah, and I agree. And, and people have tried to report volumetric analyses of how much vitreous they removed and say, oh, I, this is how much I collected at the end of the surgery. But that assumes you never were in water. And if you're a very experienced surgeon, you probably minimize the time you're cutting BSS or doing a BSSectomy, as some of my attendings called it. But you're still probably never completely efficient. I think I, I always also in this, you're almost always overestimating the amount of vitreous you remove and underestimating the amount of vitreous you left, especially in a phakic patient versus a pseudophakic patient. Do people stain routinely? You know, I usually actually use a steroid. I, I use preservative free trimcinolone to stain. Avni, do you use a steroid routinely? Are there certain cases you'd select a steroid for when you're treating a retinal detachment? Um, I don't use a steroid routinely, but oftentimes when I am, so I, I actually don't have a skilled assistant and I find that actually using a steroid to stain the peripheral vitreous does help me when I'm by myself or using a chandelier to help myself depress and do peripheral shaving, really visualize that peripheral vitreous better. So I think that's one of the ways to kind of control a little bit more for how much peripheral vitreous you're removing is, is staining it and, and really seeing yourself remove it. Um, they did that make that point actually in the study that, you know, using triessence or Kenalog to, to stain the vitreous and, and really making sure there's a thorough removal of the vitreous um, can be helpful. You know, Sabin, what are your thoughts on steroid staining? And then, you know, they 
had a lot of these cases get buckles or vitrectomies, they report kind of a high success rate regardless using the technique, whether they had the buckle or not. It's really hard to compare 99% versus 99% essentially. Thoughts on either steroids or and the, basically the, the lack of an effect of a buckle seen in this paper? So, I mean, for the lack of a, a buckle effect, I think it's these are highly experienced surgeons and they chose complicated cases that needed the buckle uh, to achieve their success rate. Um, at the end of the day, you can't do stats on 99% versus 99%. So I, I think the they probably looked at these patients who are phakic where, you know, we won't be able to get this aggressive shave in a phakic patient with a dense NS and really be able to visual out, uh, visualize out there. I'm sure those are the patients that kind of skewed towards buckling to get this highest success rate. Um, I think the use of Kenalog is, uh, or any sort of steroid is important in these patients. I don't use it routinely personally, but I have a very low threshold uh, to kind of add that into an eye. If I'm ever in doubt, did I get all the peripheral gel out? Uh, a lot of times with depression, I can visualize it. But again, in these uh, dense uh, cataracts, sometimes it's just easier to put a little catalog in and see what you're really left with. And, and last point, if you're feeling depressed about your outcomes, we should also strive for that 99% they achieved. Maybe these cases were not, uh, they were, you know, there's some complexity in them, but posterior vitreous detachment, 92% of these patients had a PVD and that probably influenced their decision to do a vitrectomy makes it a whole lot easier to fix a detachment when you have the hyaloid up to start. And that reflects good case selection. I'm not criticizing the surgeons, but that may influence the final success rate. Well, thank you guys for contributing to this discussion. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be back with a couple more papers after the break. So let's move on to this next paper, which is factors associated with the use of a 360 degree laser retinopexy during primary vitrectomy with or without scleral buckle for regmatogenous retinal detachment and impact on surgical outcomes. This is pro study report number four. Brian, I'm gonna challenge you to say that five times fast, but in reality, I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about this paper and the results. So Jay, um, you know, we've, we've pre previously discussed, uh, you know, the pro study and a couple of the papers that have come out of it. Um, I don't wanna sort of, you know, beat a dead horse. Uh, so I won't go over uh, necessarily all the, the methodology that they use to, to put the, these data together. Um, but as they've done for previous papers, um, you know, they looked at single surgery anatomic success at three months. Uh, in this particular case, they looked at final anatomic success. Um, you know, and, and these, these were folks who had had a vitrectomy with or without scleral buckle um, in the year of 2015. And, you know, they drew from the same six centers that they did for, for previous studies. Um, they, in this case, looked at uh, some secondary outcomes. They looked at, you know, final logmar visual acuity. They looked at number of subsequent uh, surgeries required, as well as um, epiretinal membrane formation and, and presence of cystoid macular edema, um, upon, you know, at the final visit. Um, and so, you know, they, they were able to identify some factors that were associated with the use of a 360 degree la uh, endolaser. Um, in this particular uh, study, they had uh, 1,347 patients who underwent primary vitrectomy, 901 who underwent combined buccal vitrectomy. Um, of the vitrectomy group, 315, uh, 315 patients had 360 degree endolaser. And in the combined group, 201 had a 360 degree endolaser. So factors associated with endolaser, 360 degree endolaser use uh, were a younger patient age, a number of retinal breaks, um, extent of RD. So, you know, more clock hours of RD, uh, you know, was, was likely to lend itself to uh, use of 360 laser and a surgeon ident uh, ident uh, sorry, identity, uh, where some uh, surgeons tend to do it more frequently than others, um, which is, you know, 
the, the way that it goes for, for most of us, you know, we all have the things that we like to do surgically and sort of stick to what we have in our bag. Um, 21% of the surgeons uh, included here uh, performed 360 degree endolaser the majority of the time. And this seemed to be more common at certain institutions. And uh, the farther out these surgeons were from training, the more likely they were to use endolaser, which I find interesting. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, just having been burned by, you know, secondary breaks, you know, too many times, you know, having been heartbroken by, by PVR, things like that. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, they found that um, single surgery anatomic success rates uh, were not significantly better um, in folks who had uh, 360 degree endolaser uh, at 85.4% uh, with and 86.7% without. This difference wasn't statistically significant. Um, final success rates, interestingly, uh, were significantly different. Uh, so folks who hadn't had endolaser or 360 degree endolaser um, had a 98.3% final success rate uh, versus 94.9 um, in those who had. Um, and there was also a significantly different, uh, uh, better visual acuity in folks who hadn't had 360 degree endolaser. And um, after taking into account certain confounding variables through multivariate regression, um, these differences held up. So uh, factors that they associated uh, with final success, uh, at least that uh, you know, affected uh, final success negatively uh, were patient age. So um, you know, folks who were younger, extent of RD and uh, 360 degree endolaser. Um, you know, and, and in the discussion, they talk about how the complexity of the case may influence the decision to use 360 degree laser. And the way that they encountered for this um, was through again, uh, multivariate regression. And, you know, they, they, they still found that, um, you know, folks with 360 degree endolaser didn't necessarily do any better and seemed to actually, you know, to, to maybe do a little bit worse. Amazing summary. And there's a lot of meat on the bone or for the vegetarians listening, a lot of peanut butter in the spoon that we can work our way through. So I'm going to start with this, Avni, you know, the first, let's talk about why people chose to do laser. So Brian just finished. He talked about younger age, more breaks more extensive detachment, surgeon ID. So some of those make implicit sense. Some surgeons just do this routinely. If you see more breaks, maybe you're more inclined to just laser everything because you're just worried. Maybe younger age, maybe you get in there. And again, younger patients tend to have more peripheral pathology maybe when you have a detachment. They're maybe more myopic or they have a more abnormal vitreoretinal and interface, more posterior vitreous base. And again, a more extensive detachment, we can talk about hidden breaks and worrying that there's more things hidden. For you, when do you decide to use 360 laser? It's interesting that Brian said that surgeons, as they get older, they tend to do this more, uh, which is, I think it's kind of interesting. What are kind of your criteria for where you say, okay, I'm going to actually laser 360 around the eye? Yeah, I think some of these um, are in line with what I would do. Um, you know, I, I don't often do 360 laser, but if there, there are multiple breaks in multiple quadrants and large areas of lattice, those patients I, I do can, you know, oftentimes do 360 laser in. Um, if a patient has sort of an abnormal vitreous space um, and I'm worried about that, that patient might be getting more extensive laser. Um, although most often I'm putting a buckle on that type of patient. Um, and then a larger extent of RD. So oftentimes I will tend to kind of laser the periphery in the area of the detachment. And so a larger 
RD or a total RD or subtotal RD might be getting closer to 360 laser, but it's not really something I tend to do unless there really are, you know, kind of breaks and lattice all over the place. Um, the other thing, you know, just from training, usually a recurrent RD where you can't find a small break, that patient is going to get 360 laser. Um, but that's not really the situation we're talking about here. And I'm just going to say a couple of things just to get, I'm going to throw myself out there and you guys can criticize what I do. I mean, I, I do not routinely laser patients 360. There's scenarios where I do it is again, like you said, extensive pathology where I'm like, you know, there's breaks in essentially every quadrant. I'm going to go 360. But I think the one thing a study like this cannot capture is how the laser is done. So there's very different styles of laser, right? There are people who paint on continuous mode. There's people who spray spots everywhere. There's the OCD people like me who make very, very beautiful, pretty rows. And maybe it does, changes nothing. And maybe it makes me feel better only, but maybe it influences the outcome. I mean, I try to teach my fellows, again, these are the Shridhar rules that I've never been validated. I say, okay, if you're going to do 360 laser, make sure you're at least at the vitreous base and beyond, right? So there's no point in lasering and leaving the vitreous base uncovered. I like to take the laser out to aura to avoid donut detachments, especially if there is no buckle placed at the time of surgery. If I'm 360 lasering and there's a buckle, I like to stay in the buckle. And if I'm going to laser posterior to the buckle, my, what my most important rule is the last or most posterior laser cannot be super, super hot because these can atrophy and form breaks and then you create more trouble for yourself. So then the other thing that is interesting, and this feeds into one of the other um, really infamous and probably not helpful Shridhar rules is, what about these patients who are doing worse, right? So they get 360 laser and they have a worse final reattachment rate. Now you can talk about confounders, Brian referenced confounders, maybe there's just more severe patients, more prone to PVR, and that's why they have a final success rate is worse. But how about the influence on laser and subsequent surgeries if you have to go back into an eye? Yeah, so that's, it's a huge challenge. So uh, with PVR, with 360 laser, I tell, I tell my fellows, we're going to deal with Swiss cheese right now. You know, when the traction develops, uh, unfortunately, it'll exceed the adhesion force of the laser itself, and it'll start just popping off retina. And we're going to end up with just these micro holes all over the place that now we not only have to reattach the retina, we got to make sure all those little micro holes are addressed. And oftentimes, if it's a PBR case, we're you know already considering retinectomies. And one of the big things that I find with 360 laser patients is they need very extensive retinectomies to adequately address that uh, the PBR. So uh, I do see how with this paper they could say that you know 360 laser may trend towards having worse outcomes in those patients, just from my personal experience. Uh, I will kind of add my own own thoughts on this paper. This is actually one that specifically changed my practice pattern. Uh, I used to be a 360 laser and I, you know, as this paper said, it's kind of a uh, very surgeon specific. And I came out of fellowship not wanting to miss breaks and I would do routine 360 laser. Um, and I had those experiences with PVR and I said, this is a mess to fix when it does occur. And then I see this data coming out and now I've, uh, this has actually been one of the papers that really directly changed my practice patterns. Now I've gone just to local treatment of the pathology and just leaving it that. Great points. And, and you know, I, I'm going to tell a story, uh, a very brilliant surgeon who'd be embarrassed to be named in this podcast, but who taught me, I remember I, I did a surgery and when I was a fellow and there was a beginning of some inferior contracture, maybe some immature PVR. And I was like, oh, I'm going to barricade that. And he was like, well, well why would you do that? And I'm like, well, I'm going to hold this back. And, and look, you can barricade certain things. But he was just kind of like, that's only going to make the situation potentially worse for what the reasons you talked about. Laser does not prevent 
PVR, I think. And in fact, it's probably inflammatory. And if the more laser you do, the more inflammation you induce. We accept the inflammation for the goals we want to with ceiling breaks and you know, if we're trying to prevent breaks of an abnormal vitreous space, sure. But it's not going to make the retina stronger in areas where there's PVR. If anything, you're going to make your job harder and maybe make things contract more. So one of my rules that's unspoken when I'm working with the fellow is, let's say we have a chronic RD with some inferior PVR, um, assuming that we don't have to address the PVR in the first surgery. We, you know, it's relaxed enough that we can drain the retina flap, but something we're just going to monitor and kind of observe. I usually in those cases say, let's minimize the amount of laser we do. We definitely want to laser the brakes and identify the brakes, but I'm not going to paint the inferior retina. And to your point, Sabine, if I have to do a second surgery in a patient and maybe in the worst case, do a retinectomy, it's going to be way easier and way cleaner to get that retinal edge nice and away from the retina that leave less of a nidus for future PVR if I just don't laser. I think the other reason 360 laser gets a bad rap, which is a little unfair, is again, the style of which is done, not to harp on that point, but if it's really done posteriorly, we some, you see all of these pictures sometimes, a posterior ring at the equator, or even posterior to the equator in the arcades, you know, that's not necessarily fixing a problem. Yes, you may protect the macula, but you can end up with a donut or anterior detachment, hypotony, neovascular glaucoma, choroidals, all sorts of issues with that. So Brian, any other points about this paper and the idea of 360 lasering? Maybe you can weigh in on your practice pattern. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think we all practice uh, fairly similarly, at least, you know, when it comes to 360 laser, I, I also don't routinely perform it. Um, you know, I will say that in cases in which I can't identify uh, a retinal break, um, in which I'm most likely to, to put on a buckle anyway, um, I will tend to do 360 laser on the buckle like UJ. Um, you know, if I'm going in to do a pseudophagic detachment and can't find a break, I may do 360 laser, but, you know, I try not to do it um, unless it's absolutely necessary. And if, you know, it's somebody who's got lots of breaks and lattice sort of circumferentially and, you know, does, it's not going to take much more laser to sort of complete the, the ring, um, I will do that. Um, but, but try not to do it routinely. I, I think we've all seen cases where, you know, a patient sort of redetaches multiple times every time, you know, they have a more posterior row or multiple posterior rows of laser. And when it comes time to do retinectomy, you know, you're, you're, you're basically performing retinectomy, you know, at the arcade or close to the arcade. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've learned to, to try to preserve real estate for, for what needs to happen. Um, you know, as, as far as the study goes, you know, it, it, for me, sort of reinforced practice patterns, um, I don't see much of a need for, for 360 laser. I have, I have partners um, and I know doctors uh, in the community who routinely will do 360 laser uh, when doing macular cases. They touch upon that in the intro to the paper. Um, um, I know docs who, when removing oil, will routinely add a row or two of laser, you know, sort of at the most posterior edge, um, you know, of whatever laser was already performed. Um, I don't do that. And I recognize that there are data to support these practices, but um, at least for now, I'm, I'm going to continue not to. Great discussion, guys. And I want to thank you for joining us for this amazing session. Dr. Sabin Dang, Brian Doe, Omnipin, Alphabetical Order, sort of east to west, though we sprung east to, to include Brian there in D.C. And uh, thank you for joining us for this new Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS. Thank you.